Hello and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. My name is Rose Luckin and I'm your host. I'm a professor at UCL and I'm also founder of Educate Ventures Research Limited, the artisans of AI who can help you unlock the power of artificial intelligence and develop your organization's roadmap so that you can use AI effectively. We provide CPD, training, consultancy advice, all connected to AI data and evidence. Right, now in this episode of the EdTech Podcast, we'll be in conversation with three very special guests, considering digital strategy, digital transformation in schools, and what that really means. We'll be looking at governance, we'll be looking at hardware, we'll be looking at software, we'll be looking at training, and of course, as ever on the EdTech Podcast, we'll be talking about evidence. So I'm going to turn to my three guests and ask each of you to please introduce yourselves. I'm going to start with Jane. Would you like to say a little bit about yourself, please, Jane? And welcome to the EdTech Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Rose, and wonderful to be here. I am a, an associate professor in teacher education at the University of Technology, Sydney. I was a classroom teacher for many years and then made the transition into higher ed um, a number of decades ago now. So, but I work at the elbow of teachers in uh, a lot of professional learning pro- um, projects, research projects, gathering evidence, and uh, my work that I've done around high-possibility classrooms came out of exemplary teachers' knowledge of technology integration. So very interested in what goes on in the classroom and how pedagogy especially can drive the effective use of technology in all its various forms. Brilliant. Thanks, Jane. And and absolutely, pedagogy is something that we talk about a lot on the EdTech podcast. It's great to have you with us and bringing another global flavour to our podcast. James, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thank you, Rose. James Simons. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called PC Locks Lock and Charge. I'm the uh, uneducated salesman's son of a school teacher. Uh, my dad uh, was frustrated with computers getting stolen from his classroom, and so he invented a computer lock, and I was good at telling people about it. And so we grew a business uh, here in Australia uh, around that, and then we followed the device. So as that migrated to mobile devices, we built secure charging storage units uh, right through now to smart lockers for managing BYOD programs, uh, predominantly in schools all around the world. And so it's been a a wonderful journey over the last 25 years. And uh, it's where I got to where I am today. Thanks, James. And it's thanks to Lock and Charge that we're bringing you this podcast today. So thank you also for being our sponsor. That's brilliant. Final introduction to our last guest. Katie, would you like to say something about yourself and you're bringing in another continent as well? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Rose. Coming uh, all the way from Calgary, Canada uh, to the EdTech podcast today. Um, Pleased to be here. Uh, My current role is with Smart Technologies, Uh, manage all of our our marketing and communications as well as I'm an education strategist at Smart. I have a background in both outdoor and museum education. uh, And during my time at Smart, I've had the opportunity to work with schools, um, you know, all, all around the globe on all of the continents represented here. (laughs) 
today and beyond. Um, you know, looking a lot at digital strategy evaluation, and and a lot of that has been tied to uh, work with what we call the EdTech Assessment Tool, uh, which is really aimed with research frameworks to help schools align um, with uh, groups around their digital strategy and and form uh, a great foundation to build from. Uh, so really looking forward to the conversation here today. Great to be with you. Thanks, Katie. And that's really important, the point that you're making about the connection between strategy and evaluation. And it's something that we'll come back to frequently in this podcast, because we always consider pedagogy and evidence as we're thinking about the role of technology within the classroom. And sometimes that technology involves artificial intelligence, and sometimes it doesn't. And so we're going to start off today's discussion by getting to the heart of the matter by thinking a bit about evidence. Now, it seems obvious that classroom solutions such as lock and charge and smart technologies are there to benefit teachers and learners. But how do we know whether those benefits are really being reaped? Yes, we need to have an effective strategy to think about how any of the products and services that we're using within our teaching and learning are developed, are applied, are implemented in a well-planned way. But part of that planning needs to be about evaluation. So, James, I'm going to start with you. And, and I thought the way that you introduced yourself was really interesting. That you know, The product that, that you represent was something that came about because of a problem that your father experienced as an educator. So that speaks to a real problems-driven approach to product development there. But can you say a little bit more about the equipment that you provide and also how you make assessments, how you help educators make assessments about the impact of what you're providing. Thank you, Rose. Uh, I think the first thing to note is that I, I do not claim to be an expert on learning outcomes. That is in the uh, the hands of my learner colleagues on this podcast, and I look forward to hearing what they have to say there. But what I do know is that there is no way any child is going to learn or any teacher is going to be able to teach if the technology is not working. <laughs> and so we predominantly follow the device. We see, as my dad did at the start, he could identify in a classroom what were the problems that were occurring around their technology even being able to be used and how can we help make that easier? How do we solve that? And so, for instance, when it moved to you know, we were locking computers to desks. And then finally, you, there was this talk in the early 2000s of giving students laptops. And in Australia, everyone was like, as if that's going to happen, as if they're going to give mobile devices to students, if they can't even manage, you know, keeping the computers on the desks. And so what we did see is that how are you going to get 30 laptops into a classroom without, you know, being able to securely store them, charge them and transport them? And there's no, you know, you wouldn't see every classroom with 30 power outlets. So there was no way this could happen. And so to have a, a mobile shared device program that had to literally be mobile. And so that's how he designed and developed the secure laptop charging cards. So uh, what we do, I think, is, is we follow the device. We see what the technology is that's coming into the classroom. And then we go, how do we make that easier? How do we allow that to be used easier? And so I think going today where we see smart lockers in schools, which is the next solution that we're developing, it's because students have their own device that they are bringing to school predominantly a lot of the time, and it's either lost, stolen, broken, forgotten, or uncharged. So 
all of these things are kind of in the hands of the students uh, and their responsibility to make sure that they're bringing it to class. And a lot of the time that's not happening. And so uh, at, at any one time, around 10% of a mobile device fleet is not working. So that means 100 out of every 1,000 devices in a large school or three devices out of three kids out of 30 kids in a class don't have a working device to learn on. So for us, it's like, how do we get that student back learning as quick as possible? How do we get that teacher teaching as quick as possible? And so the smart locker, for instance, you know, it used to take around 27 minutes on average for a student to go and get a loaner device and come back. Now, if they go to a smart locker, it's around six, seven minutes. Our latest platform wants to see that we can do that within two minutes. So for us, it's just creating zero downtime. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to hearing again what what um, Jane and Katie have to say around this in in uh, more around the outcomes of the technology. We just want to make sure the technology works and it's in front of the students. That's great, James. Thank you. It, it's very easy to overlook that very basic necessity. You have to have the tech operational. It needs to be charged. It needs to be working. It's really important. So right. thanks for bringing that. I think it, it, it's something that we can never overlook. And, and if you're developing a strategy, it has to be something that you're mindful about. Katie, I want to come to you next. You know, you've been on our podcast before, which is great. Thank you so much. And we've talked about the EdTech assessment tool that Smart uses. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, one of the taglines on the interactive displays reads, less prep, more teaching and instant <laughs> student engagement. So, Tell me a bit more about that. How's that measured? And tell us a little bit more about the EdTech assessment tool that you've developed. Those those sort of, you know, taglines or, or promises are certainly directly tied to evidence um, because, you know, what what is the evidence that something is is working and that something is is being used in the classroom? And, I, I, you know, both the, the qualitative and quantitative um, ways of, of looking at that and, and some of the evidence practices that we look at in terms of, of what we ask about in the EdTech assessment tool when we're supporting schools or organizations with getting this foundation for their strategy are how are how are the test scores, right? How is your school rankings? Um, all of these very sort of data and, and numerically driven things. And also, it's important to ask questions around, you know, the student engagement measurements. Are students more active? Are, uh, you know, and, and probably the test scores are going to go up in, in relation to that, but are they just generally more active in their classroom? How well are the teachers doing with the technology? What's the usage of it? You know, and, and because the way the effectiveness of a teacher teaching and the effectiveness of a student learning are not necessarily going to be the same. Um, you know, we we ask about those things separately and, and look through all of those different pieces of evidence of usage. And, and it goes into how we create features and functionality in, in our hardware and our software products as well that are evidence-driven, that are related to best practices, um, because that's that's what matters. And I know we've we've already started to touch on on pedagogy as well, but the idea that technology needs to be used for a reason is such an a, such an important part of that conversation. And and so when we look at this foundational tool and in terms of the EdTech assessment tool and utilizing research from some of the the other leading different frameworks from organizations like ISTE and the OECD, we we look carefully at what are the best practices from a global standpoint and ask people how they're doing um, so that then we can build from there. Then we can layer on the right 
technology and put a wrapper around it that is going to help us get to the outcomes and evidence that we're looking for. I like that idea of the wrapper around and that driving the evidence that you're trying to get at. I think it's really interesting you talk about qualitative and quantitative data, the fact that Yes, of course, many people are driven by test scores. That's what so much of our education system values, and that makes it very difficult to consider other issues. But actually, many of those other issues, as you've highlighted, are connected to those outcomes, to those those test scores that are often what judgments are made upon, engagement, activity, you know, is the technology being used? So I think we have to look much more holistically at what's going on. The other point that I picked up from what you said that I want to draw Jane into a discussion about is the question about questions. You know, what are the questions that we're asking of the data that we're collecting? What is it we are choosing as the reason for using our technology? Yes, of course, we want it to improve teaching and learning. But more specifically, what is it in particular that we're trying to achieve through a piece of technology, whether it's hardware, software, whatever it is, what is it we're trying to achieve? And then from that, how do we make judgments about whether we're being successful or not? So, Jane, I I want to come to you now. You and I have known each other for many years, and it's always been great to have a discussion with you. I love the work on high possibility classrooms, and I really want you to help us get to the kind of nitty gritty of the pedagogical heart of what we're trying to do when we're developing a digital strategy and when we're thinking about the purpose of using technology and then how we collect the right kind of data to enable us to make judgments about whether that purpose is being met. Thank you, Rose. Yes, look, this is um, not an easy task and I guess, you know, to try and I, I think over the last couple of decades we've seen all manner of assessment tools and all manner of frameworks and so on to try to really map, you know, what outcomes students are achieving with technology and, I mean, trying to do any kind of education research in classrooms in schools is very difficult just to say that up front and then trying to quarantine uh, exactly that, you know, A plus B equals C is even harder because the, and this is, I guess, a lot of people outside education in my experience don't really understand the complexity of classrooms and how to actually say, well, Um, I'm just going to look at these variables and I'm going to replicate those in another environment and then I'm going to be able to make some kind of judgment on that. We're not, uh, you know, applying a standards framework. We're not producing automobiles here. And, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to quantify in my experience. And so for me it's always been about, you know, what is it that we can learn from early adopter teachers? And so that really drove the work that I did um, first off to really deeply understand practice of those teachers that were the front runners. And was there something that they were doing that all teachers could then learn from because their classrooms were demonstrating Um, different and higher levels of performativity amongst their students. Um, Engagement, 
doesn't always equal better student learning outcomes. And, and I think what we're, what has happened now is there is just far too much data being collected. And many schools, and certainly this is a global issue, um, the, the great teacher shortage worldwide. And a lot of that, I think, has been driven by the huge impost of administrative data collection. And so the pendulum, in my view, has just swung too far in the other direction. And I can certainly talk about the digital education revolution. And I'm not sure if you'd like me just to sort of talk about that in terms of what you were saying, James, around one laptop per child. I think it would be really interesting to have a conversation about one laptop per child, Jane, definitely, particularly in view of the fact that we have James here. And I think so much work has been done to look at the relationship between the number of devices. I mean, I know in the UK, for example, we we worry constantly about the number of devices per child, but actually, mm. more importantly, the distribution of those devices. So if I take the UK as an example, if we look at OECD data, the UK actually does really well in terms of hard numbers, you know, number of devices per children of a certain age, but the distribution is incredibly unequal. So mm. it's really problematic. So I think it would be really good to have a conversation about the kind of one laptop per child approach. But I also want to pick up on some of the other things that you've just said, because I think they're really important. You started off by saying it's not an easy task. And I think that is an understatement that we need to extract. You went on to talk about how challenging it is and how it's not always easy to tie particular factors such as engagement to learning outcomes. It's complicated. You also talked about the fact that you think that too much data is being collected, which I think is fascinating, you know, as a sort of data science and AI enthusiast, shall we say, uh, you know, I love big data, I love lots of data, but I recognize what you're saying, you know, for every PhD student we supervise, what is it we say to them? Don't collect data just for the sake of collecting data, make sure the data you're collecting is the data that's going to answer your question. So I recognize what you're saying. And all of it seems to me to add up to the need for much more strategic approaches. And part of that strategy might be around one laptop per child. So yeah, let's frame the discussion within that, because I think, James, that will speak to where you're coming from. And I think, Katie, we can also bring you in because I think that speaks to the work that you're doing. So back to you, Jane, then I'm going to bring Katie in and then I'm going to come back to Jane. The digital education revolution was, I guess, a, a wonderful program in Australia. That that was an initiative of our federal government for billions of dollars to equip every child in year 9, 10, 11, 12, so those final sort of four years of schooling, if you like, with a digital device. And this was a bespoke digital device that was um, able to be dropped at, you know, from a height, able to be recharged easily. But the, the genius about that program wasn't so much in terms of the digital device was the fact that it was also it also provided a tech 
person to every school to support the use of that technology. So that um, in terms of, James, your lock and charge stations, I mean, that sort of picked up on that idea that, you know, having a charging station, because as I was thinking beforehand, you know, it has to be about ease of use. Students don't bring their devices and so on. And, and still that happened under the, the digital education revolution. But that was a really um, clever determination. But of course, this was a federal government initiative. It only lasted for three years and there was no more money. Um, but they did in the evaluations that have been done of that program post and that was done by a number of universities and, and colleagues and so on, teachers did have positive um, beliefs around the use of ICT. And it really from sort of if we look across the um, around um, a fifth of teachers in those high school years, because it was only focused in on those last few years of high school, certainly felt that they were engaged much more in teaching and learning. And so it also changed a lot of their practices to be much more student-centred. So instead of the teacher out the front, the sort of chalk and talk, if you like, it really changed and shifted pedagogy. So as a person who's interested in in not so much the whiz bangery of the tool, if I can use that term, but the the pedagogical shift that teachers were making in opening up their classrooms for for much more, I guess, variation in in their day to day pedagogy. So that that I think was a great development. But in thinking about what you've just said, Rose, I mean the collection of data per se that can actually be done by paraprofessionals in my view. And so what's happened now, because there's so much data that teachers are expected to be collecting, it's meant that their their focus on teaching and learning has shifted in what I think are not effective ways. And there's a and it has led to that really big burden of of what it means to be a teacher in schools in 2023. So if, for example, we can have that burden taken up by paraprofessionals who work alongside teachers in classrooms, then that would be an effective thing in my view. That is fascinating. Really interesting, Jane. Thank you. I think it's great to hear about that initiative from the federal government in Australia. And I'd also, for listeners, draw attention to Project Sebal in Uruguay, where they also initiated a one laptop per trial project per child initiative at a government level and actually then kept it going. And it's been really interesting to see how that's worked out. So two very interesting examples from different continents that it's worth people having a look at. I'm fascinated by what you're saying about the evidence for that shift in pedagogy, which of course is what's really important when it comes to to technology, but also what you're now saying about your worries about the overhead of data collection distracting teachers away from that focus on teaching and learning and that pedagogy. So that is absolutely fascinating. Katie, I want to bring you in at this point to get your perspective on this. And then I'm going to come to you, James, as well, because I think this is a really interesting discussion. Thank you, Jane. There's there's so much in in what you've just said, Jane. And I think the 
the idea of of you know data collection becoming so onerous for teachers is gosh that's that's a whole other piece that we could get into it and the ways that technology should be able to help and support the data that teachers need without it being um challenging from a privacy perspective right both of those things should be allowed to be true but where where I I really wanted to go was this idea of of sustainability in terms of purchasing I think especially when we look at um you know I think Rose that's a great example that you've just shared of of a government program that has been able to keep going but in so many places in the world you know especially in America in a in a post um ESSER funding world where you know funding models are changing the importance of investments in technology that is going to be sustainable is is so critical. And uh, an example came to mind when we were talking about this idea of devices from a district that I've worked with in the U.S. This was in in the before times, as I like to say. But we, we worked with a, a large district that serves a lot of students in New Jersey um, called Cherry Hill. And we were specifically uh, working with them, utilizing their EdTech assessment tool. And they had taken this idea of, you know, one laptop per student to heart. And they were right on the precipice of rolling out a, a one-to-one device um, situation at uh, really a, a cross their district. Um, but they they sort of took a pause in their plans. They worked through their, their ed tech assessment tool to get that foundation um, and, and see where they're at and where they're going. Um, and one of the things that really stood out to them as an opportunity for improvement was the idea of student participation in technology planning, in the planning of that digital strategy. Um, and so they said, okay, they, they immediately took that to heart. They went away and, and they created some new opportunities for students to be involved and to give their input. And it completely shifted the trajectory of their planning. The students said, we don't want your devices. We don't all want the same laptop. That's not useful. I want to be able to, you know, to use my MacBook Pro when I'm, you know, doing, when I'm, when I'm sharing my learning through doing a neat video project over here or, or, you know, in this case, I just need a basic Chromebook to, to do my writing or, you know, something else entirely. So they, they really shifted the strategy there. And I think the idea that it's absolutely critical to get input from a variety of different places to make those sustainable choices that are going to have a high adoption, that are going to really support the teaching and learning that's happening is, is more important than ever. Many thanks, Katie. That's it's really great to hear that additional example, particularly since you picked an example from the US where actually the One Laptop Per Child initiative has had considerable challenges. We've looked at examples from Australia. I've drawn attention to Uruguay. You've drawn attention to the US. But that Cherry Hill example is really interesting, and particularly that point about student participation and what you've highlighted about actually different students have different needs and, and how you know, recognizing that is important, but also the role of assessment and the tool that you've provided in that process of developing the strategy, which is interesting. James, I want to come to you next because, well, I have lots of questions I'd like to ask you, but first of all, I want to give you a chance to react to what you've heard, but then I'm going to come back to you because I've got a few questions I'd like to ask you as well. Well, as Katie said, there's a lot there and I can talk about this all day. So just wave your hands to shut me up. You know, getting back uh, firstly down to uh, one of Jane's comments is, uh, yeah, the DER was a real, the digital education revolution was was really interesting watching how that unfolded here in Australia. And I think by memory, and, and Jane, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 
I think the initial amount that was promised in the Kevin 07 campaign, he was our, our prime minister who was, uh, he, this was one of the election promises that he, he got in on, was a billion dollars, which was allocated to be $1,000 per student for a million students. And what I understand that schools realised very quickly, because there wasn't a Chromebook then, so, you know, devices were between $600 and $1,000. In fact, I remember Apple reduced the price of a, a MacBook to be able to fit under the, 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 the limit and be $999. But what they realised is that the device in itself will not work. We, we can't run a program with just the device. And by memory, the program was, was lifted to $2.5 billion dollars which gave $2,500 allocation so that third-party accessories like charging carts, like increased improved infrastructure, uh, professionals coming in, staff coming in, IT staff, that came in that second tranche of funding. So it was encouraging to see we can't just throw technology. We need all of these other things that, that Jane sort of talked about. And I think this, the world watched what Australia was doing. Japan has been the last to do it. They've just recently gone from six to one to one to one. And they did that in a year. We shipped about 25,000 charging devices to Japan in the middle of COVID for them to be able to do that. And they just watched and waited. And I think they did it really, really well. Uh, and they had their funding model right. You know, and then we talk about their staff shortages that we, we've got. And I think that is one of the biggest burdens. Um, you know, we talk to districts in the US. Let's say there's one district down in Florida. And they said, our biggest burden is not finance, it is staff. We've got 600 open positions right now for teachers in the school district. I mean, this was a, a district of quarter of a million kids. And so we just don't have enough bodies. We don't have enough teachers to teach. We don't have enough administrators. So the biggest burden for running a tech program there is, is actually humans to be able to run the program. They know there's going to be positive outcomes from the technology. But it's just, it still needs to be facilitated and managed. That's what's kind of driven us a little bit is like, well, how do we reduce that burden? How do we get a robot in there to do a lot of the jobs that teachers or librarians? I mean, a loaner program in most schools today is, Miss, I forgot my, my device. And they're like, go to the library. And you go to the library and you have to manually sign out. And hopefully a librarian will have a device for you and they take all your data. Uh, same thing if it's broken, they take all your data and they take your device. It's all done through a librarian. So a librarian's not being a librarian. They're being a, an IT administrator or the receptionist is doing it or IT are doing it if they're on site at the time. And so there's all of this additional human burden, uh, even on the teachers to have to raise tickets to get kids to have a spare device. So We've approached that from the, the solution perspective for us is combining hardware and software saying, how do we, how do we get a robot doing this that no one else has to do that? And so how do we put it in the hands of the students to be able to go identify themselves, get a loaner device themselves and come back to class so that everybody in the school can actually do the job that they're supposed to be doing? So, uh, I like Jane's idea of if we do need to get paraprofessionals in there to help staff. For us, it's like, what additional technology can we put in there? to make that technology uh, better for the staff so that they're not doing it. So that's kind of my, my first response to uh, those questions. That's brilliant, James. And I think you're picking up on the staff shortages and that speaks to a lot of what Jane and Katie have said. You know, in order for these programs to be sustainable, we have to look way beyond the device to the way that it's used, to the to the touch points that both the learner, the teacher, and the additional staff have in order to make 
that technology something that can meet the needs of a teaching and learning process. It's not just about the device. I think that's really a key message from all of these one laptop per child type programs. So I think that's really important. One thing that I'm wondering, and I, and I realize I'm asking you to speculate here, but thinking about what we've just been talking about and the need for what you and Jane are both referring to as paraprofessionals, which I think I understand and, and makes sense, and that data collection point. Do you think that for an organization such as yourself, there is potential for you to become part of that data collection journey because you are in a way a hub when it comes to the hardware? Is there is there a way in which you could envisage a future role that where you also become part of that that data journey? Do you see what I mean? And does that make sense, the question? A hundred percent. This is the advantage, I think, for 23 of our 25 years, we were purely a hardware company. In the last two, three years, as we have integrated software in, it means that we are able to see how the technology is being used. We can advise schools to say, hey, this smart locker only got accessed four or five times in this area, we noticed, why don't you take it to the this other building where we're seeing that, you know, everybody is going and getting their device. That's a that's a more popular area and that's going to reduce some of the bottlenecks if you you put it in this space. So we can use some of that data for very basic things like that. But we're also able to see, you know, what what is the percentage of downtime that that is is being caused by lost, stolen, broken, forgotten or uncharged devices, feeding that back to schools um, and then maybe even doing further education to the parents as well as the the, the students because the buy-in has to be from the, you know, the teachers, the parents and the students. And so for us it might be, hey, there is an issue at the school where kids just really aren't responsible with their device. There needs to be some better education. There needs to be some some greater vision casting maybe to the parents on why this is so critical. So you get that support at home and and they don't seem to not care at all about what's what you know Johnny or Sally is doing with their device and whether they're bringing it to school or not. I think that that buy-in needs to be there. And we can provide a lot of that through just even usage data of how that technology has been utilized when and where and how. Today's episode is sponsored by Lock and Charge, an education-focused company who is revolutionizing the way tech teams manage mobile devices in schools. As dependency on digital curriculum grows, Lock and Charge solutions ensure students, teachers, and tech departments aren't losing learning or working time due to uncharged, broken, or missing devices. From charging carts and stations to cloud-connected smart charging lockers, Lock and Charge Solutions provide instant access to ready-to-use devices anytime they're needed. Get in touch by visiting www.lockandcharge.com. That's lock, the letter un, and charge.com. And learn how your school or district can save time, money, and resources. That's really interesting hearing you say that your journey is going from hardware to including software as well and that data piece, which I think is fascinating. And I want to pick up on this question of sustainability strategy and resourcing beyond the hardware, because I know many years ago when we at EVR started looking at helping organizations develop their digital strategies, one of the key points we would make is, okay, 
let's start with an audit, but let's not just audit the technology you have. Let's also audit the human resource that understands how that technology works, because you need both. You need the devices and you need the people who understand how to leverage that technology. We know from years of implementation research that actually it's the implementation of a particular technology that makes all the difference to the impact that technology has. And that implementation is influenced by many contextual factors that need to be taken into account. Back to the question of training. So, Jane, give us your views on how we help address this human need when it comes to leveraging that technology. Yes. So, well, how much time do you want? <laughs> okay. Um, so, I know. Yeah. Teacher-professional learning, that's, yeah, that's the heart and soul what I, of my work over the last um, four decades in education. So there's, not, there's never been enough money um, and enough resources, enough time allocated for the professional learning of teachers. And that in, in the technology space, that has been, there's evidence of that everywhere. So, I mean, even with the DER, the money's allocated to that, there was not nearly enough money allocated for teacher professional learning. And that, that has to be ongoing. It can't be a one hit wonder. It's got to be sustained and long-term. And so the work that I've done, and I guess well published in both of my recent books, is all around um, how you actually do research, action research projects with teachers that are driven by what the teacher wants to look at, what the context demands, and how technology um, in its various forms can support that teaching and learning. And so that teacher education frame, well, the, the framework of high possibility classrooms is is pedagogically focused on teacher strategies and, and student learning processes. And so what I've seen with that is that it, when teachers work in small teams, they um, work collaboratively and, you know, really the sky's the limit in terms of what they can achieve. But these sorts of uh, projects Gathering evidence take time and the most successful ones have been where there has been engagement for longer than 12 months. And of course, a lot of tech companies, I think it'd be fair to say, don't necessarily want to wait that long. They want to um, very much, it's that science model that um, goes in applies a particular um, set of variables and then wants an outcome very quickly. And it's simply not possible, I would argue, within school context to do that kind of work. Um, you want to see if it's, you know, sustained over a term, is it sustained with that same class, where where are they the following year and so on. And so it's um, the implementation part, I agree, Rose, is absolutely important. But I also want to say that 
tech companies, in my view, have been all too ready to sell devices to schools. And in the selling of those devices, it then costs a lot of money for those schools to have them upgraded. And it um, and if they're not upgraded, they then sit um, unused because they're simply out of date. And I actually think that it's incumbent on tech companies to keep renewing those devices once they've been initially purposed. Now, that's probably not going to fit uh, purchased. Um, I, I, I guess that's not going to be necessarily a popular view held by when you uh, held by many, um, you know, tech companies in terms of their business models. When you think of the thousands and billions of dollars that tech companies have made, um, I would argue using these devices. And remember that things like a laptop or an iPad, for example, they were actually entertainment devices. Um, if we take the case of the iPad that was then used by teachers in classrooms. And obviously, those examples and that tech has moved on. But we look at, say, the interactive whiteboards, and we certainly did one of the very first studies on teachers' use of interactive white bodies in the world. That was um, that was done by, by my colleagues, colleagues Shook et al., and I actually worked as the de- departmental person on that particular research. And that was right at the start of the use of the smart technologies in classrooms. And they did shift pedagogy, but then, of course, they became these large um, TV screens that were then used in ways that I, 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 saw, I saw that were they had shifted from their initial, I guess, idealistic view around how that technology be, would be used in the classroom to something that was much more mundane. So I think that it is incumbent on companies to provide the requisite training and to provide the requisite education of teachers. I prefer that word as opposed to um, training um, in that you train dogs, you don't train teachers. Um, We educate teachers. Um, So I think that has to be part of digital strategies that are used by schools and there has to be enough time and that time is just simply not available. And certainly um, schools in my immediate jurisdiction in New South Wales, in Australia, um, there's been very, very clear directives given that schools need to be focused on mandated education as opposed to the kind of professional learning that I think supports and builds capacity in teachers and continues to do so. So, and that's a very um, that's a very recent development. It's really sort of post COVID, I would would argue, and I'm not sure that the kind of learning and the longevity, say that somebody like myself was enabled to do a number of years ago, is is being sustained right now. And that's to the detriment, I think, of the profession more broadly. That's fascinating. And the whole point of having multiple voices on these podcasts is to get lots of views. So it's really valuable to hear what you're saying about those challenges that you're, you're, you're providing to tech companies, you know. And that point about time is very well made. 
everybody wants to know very quickly if something is working. But I'm sure when I come to you, Katie, you know as well as I do that these things take time. You know, that we have to give time to collect data, time to learn from data, time to think what that means, what the implications of the findings are, how you then feed that back into practice, what difference that makes. It's not a quick win. It does take time. I also take on board your point about education and that it is about that, you know, professional development, professional learning, professional education. That's a point really well made. I also think it's interesting to think about what you were saying, James, about the fact that the original amount per student in the Australian um, initiative around um, DER was 1000 and then it went up to 2500 Australian dollars per student, I think you said. And that probably didn't include anything for teacher education, which you know speaks to exactly how, how expensive these initiatives are, particularly if we want them to be sustainable. But the benefits when they are sustainable, I think, you know, can be clearly seen in countries like Uruguay, where they have sustained uh, that initiative with a whole lot of um, teacher education programs and lots of support. Katie, I want to come to you next to get your perspective on this training, but we're now going to talk about it as education, you know, teacher education, professional education. How does that fit with what you're doing with the EdTech assessment tool? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, it's it's a big part of what we ask the questions around when we ask about digital strategy in the EdTech assessment tool. What's what's the mindset of teachers when it comes to professional development? Are they being offered, uh, you know, to Jane's point, collaborative, connected opportunities? Um, is the training ongoing? And I think most critically and, and most importantly to think about when it comes to professional development, sorry, I said the word training, I didn't mean to, when it comes to professional development is it seems simplistic, but what's the content of it? And is it connected to the pedagogy? Because it's all, you know, fine and good to tell a teacher how to turn on their smart interactive display. It's all, you know, fine and good to let the, you know, tell them how to make sure their students have their devices charged up. But it it ultimately, it has to come back to why, and it has to start with the teaching practice. The technology needs to support the teaching practice, um, and the training needs to help teachers with what they're already doing. You know, if if anyone offering education to teachers is going in to a classroom and saying, okay, you need to change what you're doing, and this is the way we're going to do it moving forward, that's not going to work. That wouldn't work for any of us in our professions, right? If someone came in and said, change what you're doing, do it this way instead. Well, there could be validity in what they're saying. That's going to be a much more difficult thing to, you know, to support and to get engagement on than saying, here's what you're doing. Here's how it could be made a little bit easier with the help of this particular technology that you have available. Here are some of the ways that you could add to what you're doing with the particular technology that you have available. Um, and here's ways to do a lot of different things with a lot of different types of technology. Um, because at the end of the day, in order for it to, to be sustainable, and so that we end up with technology to, to change point that isn't just becoming, you know, a glorified TV at the front of the classroom. The teachers need to see the value in it. It needs to be easy to use and intuitive. And the the education for them needs to be continuous. It needs to be built in and it needs to be rewarded as well uh, in terms of of teachers, you know, taking the time, whether that's through professional development hours, whether that's through other other, you know, means there there needs to be a reason for teachers to 
to participate in it, both for the what the outcomes are going to be for their students and, and for themselves as well. So there's a lot of components to making it successful. Um, but I would say, you know, at the end of the day, really ensuring that it is foundationally grounded in the pedagogy is where it needs to start. Foundationally grounded in a pedagogy makes a huge amount of sense to me, Katie. Thank you. I also think your point about reward is really important. We know from decades of research that actually one of the key success factors when it comes to technology having a positive impact is the fact that teachers are given time to learn how to effectively implement the technology, but also that their efforts are recognised. You know, that reward, it, it may not necessarily be a tangible pay rise or something like that, but just the fact that the effort that they've put in is recognised, that they are given time to join communities of practice, to take part in educational initiatives and professional development is super important. So I think it's a really key point you're making there in terms of that sustainability issue. I know we we are going to get to James as well, and and I'm I'm absolutely not here to talk about product, um, mm. but I just want to say, Jane, to your point about making sure that technology can continue to be sustainable without new purchases. Hundred percent agreed, and that part of the the philosophy that we operate on at Smart is is a hundred percent that, mm. and providing pathways, whether that's through over the air updates, um, whether that's through you know different appliances and, and other opportunities. You shouldn't have to go and spend thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. on new things and things shouldn't have to end up in the landfill, um, you know, absolutely committed to making sure that there's there's pathways for things to stay useful, to be, you know, have all the new features, be connected to all the best practices. It's it's absolutely critical. And as I was saying before, you know, funding is is challenging and, and these things should be lasting till forever and a day. Um, couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And actually, that's a really nice lead in to back to you, James, because we've heard a lot about ease of use. And I think what you're doing speaks to that. I'm sure there's other points you want to make as well. But let's face it, you know, in terms of device sustainability, I am sure um, keeping devices well charged, well looked after, well stored adds to the sustainability of those devices. And you've already spoken to the points about ease of use in terms of making sure that you're cutting the amount of time that's involved when, say, a child arrives and they don't have their tech. You know, how do you speed up the process of them getting access to tech? So, James, back to you. Yeah, um, 100%. I think one of the data points we saw was uh, the increased life of a device if it's well looked after, obviously. Uh, there have been school, school districts that we know of that started as a take-home program and they reverted back to a keep at school program because the amount of damages of and lost and stolen devices from to and from in school was so high. And what they actually worked out is that in their demographic, 95% of students had access to a device at home so that they actually didn't need to take that device home with them. Um, and then they could just provide it to, say, a smaller group of students in the school to have a device to go home. And that they themselves are using then going, okay, now we can securely store, charge and secure it. And that was increasing the life of the device and the sustainability of the device. Now that's looking purely at the hardware. I really like Jane's point because I think she's put technology companies on notice and, and they need to be. 
What I have seen though is that that with now that probably 90 to 95% of the technologies we're talking about in the classroom are actually software platforms. And also too, they're highly competitive now. The landscape has become very competitive. So the the days of one and done are not as common as they used to be. I used to sell charging carts to a school. I still know schools that 15 years later are using the same charging carts. However, we cannot even dream of putting our product into a school if we do not educate the every level of uh, administration through to the teachers on how this, not only how it works, but what are the outcomes they can expect from that. What software companies have today is not just the sales division at the front end of the, the, the pre-sales of, hey, here's your salesman, I'll sell you the salesperson, I'll sell you the, the product. They have a post-sales division called customer success. Every software company has it. And the whole idea of customer success is to ensure the customer's success because if they don't, when their contract finishes, they will be shopping around and they've got so much choice now and there's a lot of really good solutions. So it has put software companies on notice to go, the customer success teams are checking in. They're looking at the usage of the product going, hang on, they're using this feature really well, but they're not even touching some of these other features that could save them a whole lot of time and money. So they're reaching out and they're engaging with them and they're doing lunch and learns and they're doing webinars to ensure that technology is fully utilized. Why? Because for commercial reasons, we want to get the renewal. The tech companies want, they don't want to lose this customer. They get paid annually for this software. So it is a, it's it's a win-win. It wins for the, the organizations like the tech companies that are going, okay, we, we get to keep this customer. But in order to do it, we have to make sure that there's full engagement. Otherwise, products can become doorstops and they're not used and then in, a, in the world of social media and the way that things are talked about on, you know, brand is everything and reputation is everything. So I hope, I do, I am hopeful, uh, according to what Jane and Katie have spoken about, that that tech companies are lifting their game and hopefully uh, the competitive landscape is um, meaning that they're, they're really having to stay sharp and and ensure that outcomes are happening because if not, I think they'll go, you know what, that platform, it just doesn't really work for us um, and, and they'll go elsewhere. So, you know, that's my hope for it. I know that's what we're having to do. A little bit about how the sausage is made, but uh, I, I think that's, um, uh, you know, I think that's promising for the future. I love to end on a hopeful note, James. So thank you very much for providing that hopeful note. I like the idea of a win-win and no more products as doorstops. I think that's great. I wish we had more time to talk. We didn't get to issues of governance, which I would love to have got to, but I think the discussion's been really rich. I think we've successfully traversed hardware, software, pedagogy. We've brought it all together. I think really important points about sustainability, about putting tech companies on notice. You know, products need to meet the needs of educators and sustainably so. Also, there's important points about teacher education and reward. So there's a lot in this episode for our listeners, and I'm sure they'll really enjoy listening to it. I'll also make sure that we put in the pod notes links to your two books, Jane. I think that's really important. Links to the EdTech Assessment Tool, Katie, and obviously to Lock and Charge. You are the sponsors of this episode. But it might also be interesting if we can put some links to that Cherry Hill project that you mentioned, Katie, and perhaps also... The initial initiative that we've discussed um, in Australia here 
in that uh, digital education revolution project. I think it'd be nice to put some links to maybe the evaluation of that. Um, plus, we'll put something in about Project Sebal in Uruguay, because again, it's a really interesting example of what it means to really effectively engage students and teachers in that kind of one laptop per child approach. But for now, sadly, we have to close the podcast. I thank our guests for engaging in a brilliant discussion. I I do believe this will be an episode that our listeners will very much enjoy. So thank you so much for joining me today and for being so energetically engaged in our conversation. We will be launching a new series of the EdTech podcast about AI and education, something we didn't get to to discuss today, but is very much part of what's happening when it comes to educational technology at the moment. And in that series, we'll be visiting some really meaty topics, including neuroscience, metacognition, and the future horizon of AI and more. So watch out for that one. Today's episode is sponsored by Lock and Charge, an education-focused company who is revolutionizing the way tech teams manage mobile devices in schools. As dependency on digital curriculum grows, Lock and Charge solutions ensure students, teachers, and tech departments aren't losing learning or working time due to uncharged, broken, or missing devices. From charging carts and stations to cloud-connected smart charging blockers, Lock and Charge solutions provide instant access to -to ready-to-use devices anytime they're needed. Get in touch by visiting www.lockandcharge.com and find out more about the resources that they offer. I hope wherever you're listening today, you found our discussion informative and practical and that it's given you something that you can use and share with your colleagues, your teams and your friends. If you want more information on this series and our upcoming series on AI and education and find out more about our lovely guests today, please visit the EdTech Podcast website at www.theedtechpodcast.com and connect with us via social media. And to discover how Educate Ventures Research Artisans of AI can help you unlock the power of AI for your organization by developing your AI roadmap, your professional development, education programs with respect to AI, have a look at www.educateventures.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn. You've been listening to the EdTech Podcast presented by myself, Professor Rose Luckin, with our lovely guests here today in the studio, Jane, James and Katie. Thanks so much for joining us.